Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 191 for April 9th, 2009, GhostNet. Security Now is brought to you by IWantToBeANerd.com. The Nerds on Site team of IT professionals is looking for nerds with all competencies and skills. Go to www.IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting today. And by GoToMyPC, the safe way to access your PC remotely that's as secure as online banking. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMyPC.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that talks all about your security, your privacy, how to protect yourself online. And Steve Gibson's our man. If Steve can't do it, no one can. <laughs> He's from GRC.com, the creator of SpinRite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, also the discoverer of spyware, the guy who coined the term spyware, and, uh, and, a, and a security advocate going way back. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you this week, as always. How is uh, how's everything going in the... Uh, Really good. Um, I've I got distracted for a couple of weeks. I pulled away essentially from the work on the DNS benchmark that I hope to be maybe in two weeks t- telling our listeners about because it has ended up being very cool and we've learned some things, uh, interesting things about uh, home routers and uh, and why you don't want them to get involved with your DNS. Although by default they typically are now more and more. And uh, I did also brought myself up to speed on this on today's topic, GhostNet, which is um, an interesting report that was generated by two um, research groups up in Canada, and it's it's got me thinking about the whole botnet tracking deal. And I'm and I'm I have half a mind to um, set up my own little Conficker honeypot. Just I think it'd be fun to watch Conficker run. Of course, you know, security firms all over the world have Conficker honeypots. And it's like, okay, well, you know, it'd be fun to, like, you know, have a little first-hand information about that, too. Conficker. So yeah. you could set up your own Conficker uh, receiving center? Oh, easily. I'm sure that my my the, my the attachment folder, my it's Eudora attachment folder huh? is full of <laughs> Conficker. It's just, I, yeah. And in fact, what, what I'll do is I'll, I, I think I'm going to put a vast back on the machine that I used for scanning my friend's laptop a couple of weeks ago when, when hers got infected. And then just drag the whole, make a copy of the my Eudora attachments folder over to that machine and then stand back while a vast says, oh, a vast, you matey. <laughs> Run, yeah. run for your lives, run for the hills. And then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll find some, and then I'll just install XP on on a on a uh, a honeypot machine, and you know, and not patch XP. Open one of those attachments that'll infect it. It'll jump onto the Conficker botnet, and then of course I'll have packet sniffing going on too, so I can watch it do things. Which oh, I think would be, be very f- interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're bra- you're a brave braver man than I, however. Well, I've got a cable modem with two IPs from Cox, so I can give it its own IP. I put it behind its own router, so I'm not looking at the cable modem traffic, but only the 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 you know infected host traffic. And uh, you know, I mean, I've done that before, back when I was tracking down the the weenies that were attacking me. Right. Um, you know, and and basically, it was I have a story, of course, that was very much like what we're going to be talking about this week. Where, but these guys were the, the ones that we're talking about this week are clearly politically motivated whereas before it was just you know the 13 year olds screwing around with botnets when botnets were in their infancy now of course botnets are a big profitable enterprise we're going to talk about GhostNet, the spy and you know uh, there was a story in the wall street journal i don't know if if you're uh, if you're if you read this uh, i think it was yesterday that there are also spies programs that are being found in our grid in our national electric infrastructure and of course that's exactly where if you were going to do cyber warfare the first thing you'd go to is the grid yep 
And uh, this is a fascinating story. So I'll read to you a little bit uh, from that, too. And I I think it's probably very similar to the GhostNet uh, story. Before we get to that, though, I do want to mention our sponsor. Go to my PC, the great folks at Citrix. Did you ever know um, uh, Ed um, Yakabuchi? Did you ever meet him? No. Does the name ring a bell? He, uh, oh, he's a great guy. I used to hang out with him at Comdex. He he was a founder of Citrix, started Citrix way back when. But before that, he was with IBM uh, and he was on the OS2 team and he was detached from the OS2 team to Microsoft to do Windows NT. And I'm pretty convinced that, and this is kind of the scuttlebutt going around, that he pretty much wrote, you know, the core code, the kernel and so forth for Windows NT as Microsoft was, Microsoft engineers were doing the same thing in Boca for OS2 for IBM. Right. There was this great sharing going on. And uh, and it's kind of funny. But as a result, Ed knew the internals of NT better than anybody, even the people at Microsoft. I think that's one of the things that made Citrix so successful. Citrix, of course, went on to do remote access. Their uh, remote access uh, engine is used by Microsoft in its remote access. Right. And they have two uh, commercial products. Actually, they have several. Uh, they have go to, go to Meeting, we've talked about. Go to, go to My Assist, we've talked about. And the one I want to talk about today is Go to My PC. It is... The just, you know, it's if you could if you if you were designing having an intimate knowledge of how remote access worked and you were designing what how could we make this as easy as possible for a non-technical person to use as secure as possible? This is what you would do. And boy, when 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 it's like the fifth time you've been, you know, this when you've been through this and you've written this program many, many times, it gets better and better and better. And you really if you boil it down to the basics, you really know how to do this, Uh, you know. I think a lot of people sometimes are a little nervous about the idea of remote access. Certainly people who listen to this show because they're worried about the security involved in remote access. It takes a little while sometimes for us to trust new technologies. Uh, Online banking, good example. A lot of people avoided it. Um, Now, I think most of us can't live without it. And we trust it. We know it's it's relatively (laughs) secure. With a few exceptions. Go to my PC. Some people may be a little slow to adopt for the same reason. Believe me, there has, has never been an exploit. Not once uh, against GoToMyPC. They use 128-bit industry standard SSL encryption, state-of-the-art, both, you know, from your end and the other end. So, you you know, you the, the government could use it, for, for all I know they do, could use this for a remote access. Very easy to set up. In fact, if you had started when I started talking, you'd probably have it set up by now. Here's what you do. Go to GoToMyPC, G-O-T-O-M-Y-P-C dot com slash security now. You can get a free 30-day trial. Take a couple of minutes to set up. No, you know, no router configuration. None of that because they've got NAT traversal. I mean, they've just, it's just sweet. Easy to use. Absolutely secure. No wonder PC World once again has given it their world-class award for best remote access software. I concur. And now you can try it free. Go to mypc.com slash security now. It is, uh, it's just the best. This is what, you know, experience leads you to writing the best software. And this is it. All right, let's talk uh, about, um, do you want to do any errata from previous shows? Oh, always have okay. security news and a little bit of errata okay. of, or miscellanea. Um, the, on a sort of a separate, not quite really directly related topic, you probably saw yesterday, Leo, that uh, the U.S. Justice Department came down with a very disturbing decision re- re- uh, related to warrantless wiretapping. You know, I, I saw the headline and I didn't read it. What what did they oh, decide? Because uh, this, this is a scary thing. It's got the constitutional scholars very upset. Oh, dear. Um, apparent, and I, had, is, I had really hoped for better, frankly. Uh, yeah, we all had from, you know, the Brock's administration. Um, but one of them was explaining that no president has ever walked back any rights which were ha- that had been obtained by any previous presidents, of which is another not. way of saying it, it only keeps getting worse. Yeah, of course. Why would you um, give it back? Unless exactly. you Exactly. Why? Well, you know, a lot of nice integrity if, or something. Crazy, yeah, exactly. Crazy, crazy like that. Um, and, and, you know, he was been out of the country. So but but apparently this, you know, we, we um, this look this looks like it's it's clearly coming from the administration. What the decision was that came down from justice was that relative to warrant wire wi- warrantless wiretapping suits, because several suits have been brought by people, for example, against AT&T, 
who was one of the participants in the warrantless wiretapping probes that was revealed during the Bush administration, a bunch of people sued them for this being unconstitutional. The Justice Department said that the government will be held harmless and that no action can be taken except in the instance of deliberate, voluntary disclosure of the information, which, you know. In other words, if they leak it, okay. If they deliberately leak it, not even if it leaks, if it's deliberately um, exposed, then that opens the government to consequences. But don't even think about it. You have you have no standing in the event that, you know, even if you learn that you've been spied on, that's OK. Um, and one of the constitutional scholars, I don't remember exact his exact phraseology, but I found it really interesting. He, he, he said it's not possible to have a right without having the ability to defend it. I think sort of paraphrasing what he said, which I thought was interesting. It's like the point is that this has completely removed any defense. I mean, it's completely removed any action that someone can take when they've been wronged, even when 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 it's clear that they've been wronged against the law, that then this this supersedes that and there's no action that can be taken. They're claiming the government is, quote, completely immune from litigation for illegal spying. The right. government can never be sued for surveillance that violates federal privacy statutes. Now, this is just their assertion. This is just a brief. It's not the law of the land. I hope the court goes, uh, excuse me, Good Fourth Amendment, because <laughs> uh, that is that is just uh Well, it's appalling. like, okay, how, wait a minute. How did this happen? This is not what we were supposed to get, but well, maybe we did. Well, well I think you, you, know, you might have hit the nail on the head. Nobody's ever stepped back from a, a, a you've, that's why we've got to be eternally vigilant in restricting the power of government because once it gets it, it is once it goes forward. Yes. And, and you know, they're protect what they're, I think what this does essentially is the point is they protect the previous administration, hoping that the next administration might protect them. Should they do anything like this? Yeah. And you know, I have been, I mean, I don't it's want to, to get into politics, but I've been pleased that there isn't this, you know, let's go attack the prior eight years. I mean, it's like, right. I, you know, Barack really seems to have a, let's just move on and, you know, I think that's the, the proper thing, but this may yeah. be a case where moving on is not the right thing to do. Although maybe the feeling is this is the last thing we want to do is get in a uh, a myriad of court cases over uh, NSA wiretaps and so forth, wireless yeah. wiretaps. Yeah. Um, good article on this on the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation site if you, uh, if you want to read more about this. They are very active, of course, in these kinds of On an annoyingly related note, the UK passed on Monday um, their version of this EU um, edict, essentially, uh, which is increased and and formally ratified the data retention, which is being done of all citizens in the UK um, and which is supposed to be adopted across the whole EU. Um, they've added to the previous data retention guidelines the requirement for ISPs of all manner to record for a period of no less than 12 months the sender, recipient, date, and time of all email sent. Oh, boy. So there was, there was um, and the caller and recipient of any internet telephone calls. There was already legislation in place that required the location and details of regular landlines and cell phone calls to be retained and even for cell locations to be to be recorded uh, when they they were knowable and so what's been added is now any outgoing email not the body of the email itself because that's just way too much to record but the sender recipient date and time of all email sent will now be recorded uh, retained by the ISP for up to 12 months I mean, for no less than 12 months. Hmm. Um, Sweden is apparently just ignoring the whole thing outright, just saying, uh, no, we're not doing that. And Germany is challenging it in the courts. Um, but, the U- but the UK signed into law on Monday um, an, an adoption of this. And so all UK-based ISPs, um, apparently, they're complaining about it. They're complaining about the cost. And the UK said, well, we will pay for the cost. We will underwrite the cost of doing this. We need this for... 
for the sake of the security. There's a an Isabella Sankey, who's a policy director at Liberty, said that the director the directive formalized what had already been taking place under voluntary arrangements for years. But she said the problem is that this re- this regime allows not just police to access this information, but hundreds of other public bodies. And I mean, that's always the concern here is that you end up with this big database and then people go, oh, you know, that would be useful for something else as well. You know, the repurposing of data is is really a concern. Yeah, rightly so. Um, in other news, and this really, really relates to where we're about to go with our, with the story of GhostNet, uh, there is a newly discovered zero day unpatched PowerPoint vulnerability, which is now being used in targeted exploits. Um, there have been PowerPoint, um, little, you know, PPT files found in email so-called spear phishing, where they're sent to specific email accounts, specific individuals, trying, you know, targeting them specifically. This hasn't been yet found in wide-ranging spam because, you know, uh, if anyone finds a, an unknown, uh, any, any bad guy finds an unknown, unpatched exploit, they recognize that they only have some length of time to use it before it gets found and and then we start the patching and the AV pattern updating cycle. So it makes sense that if a, if a new vulnerability is found, it's going to be kept under wraps and as much use of it will be made prior to using it widely. You're not going to want to spam the world with it until you, you until you can no longer get maximum value from it by doing targeted attacking. And so so right now we're at the target attacking phase. Microsoft has a page on their site acknowledging this. They've seen it. They they know it's happening. Of course, here we are with the the second Tuesday of April is the next Tuesday uh, for our recording. So so by the time we hear from you again, or by the time our listeners hear hear from us again, we'll know whether Microsoft made this into um, their April uh, patch round. At this point, we don't know. There is no patch for it, no fix for it, um, but Microsoft has acknowledged it. So it's just, you know, one more in a, in a, in a continuing, literally weekly flow of, of new vulnerabilities being found in the software that most of us are using. It's hmm. amazing. You know, you'd think that it'd slow down after a while. <laughs> Gosh. Well, it, the <laughs> you know, new like software we'd, kept We'd being... find them all or something, but I guess... It's like yeah. weeding. They, yeah, exactly right. It's like weeds. They just, new ones sprout up all the time. And I also wanted to ask you, because I've seen a whole bunch of positive feedback about my recommendation last week of tree style tabs. Um, are you using still it? Using- Love it. Yes. Not only that, um, uh, Sarah Lane came in and said, where's my tabs? And I said, oh, they're on the side. And she said, oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, t- yes, it's great. Good, yeah. good choice. This is a Firefox extension. Yep. So, uh, you know, everybody using Firefox on any platform can use it. Um, it seems to have fewer features over on the Mac platform. Um, oh, I, I like that. I like some of the things I can do under Firefox and Windows uh, with it. And and one person posting in our news group said something that I didn't realize. If you've got a hierarchy of tabs because you've opened some links underneath an existing page, just dragging the parent tab to another Firefox window brings all the kids Oh, I like that. Yeah. So you're able to, you know, you're able to like, That's you know, really handy, create a new window that has a whole subset of the tabs that you had opened the hierarchy underneath a given tab just by grabbing the the, the parent. Which very is clever. Very, very, very cool. clever. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to reiterate for people who haven't made the jump or uh, who weren't curious, maybe, uh, you know, we're getting great positive feedback from that recommendation. You might want to check it out. What's the, uh, the actual name of the, uh, of the add on? Is it Firefox um, tabs? I think it's called Free Style Tab. Three words. Free, I'm sorry, Tree. Tree Style Tab. Tree Style Tab, that's right. And uh, the version I'm using on the Mac is 0.7.2. But I would imagine it's the same. I mean, it gives you a lot of preferences. You know, actually, I haven't really dug into this much. I know. It's like overwhelming. I thought, okay, wait a minute. I'm just, I'm going to start using it first because I don't know if I want to change any of these settings yet. I want to, you know, use it the way the author has defaulted it. And then maybe after I'm familiar with it, I'll go, oh, look, I can 
push this button over here and it'll do something a little better for me. It's even got different uh, different views, <laughs> different appearances. and Yeah. Wow. Wow. I didn't. Yeah, you're right. I didn't. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is quite, quite more. I had never looked at the preferences. This is quite, quite elaborate. It's like, OK, oh, wait a I don't even know what all that stuff does. <laughs> Holy cow. So uh, this was posted by Anthony in Australia. And I don't. I don't record. I haven't recorded where, whether it came in through email or the news group or what. But he sent me a note. He said, "Spinrite on par with Craig Venter's brilliance." Now you know who Craig Venter is. Well, I didn't until I got down to the end of his message. We interviewed him on the Screensavers. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, one of the most important people of our generation, I would say. Well, I, go I don't ahead. Think I mean, it's quite on a par. It puts with you that, right up but... there. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it was in his blog. It was a blog post oh, how neat. Oh, he how made neat. on February 20th. And he said he had tags, Spinrite, Steve Gibson, and GRC.com. And, and then he, 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 he blogged. He said, some feedback I just sent to Steve Gibson, the creator of Spinrite, parens V6, at GRC.com. He said, hi, Steve. I'm a longtime Security Now listener and Spinrite user. And today was one of those blue moon days where Spinrite saved our bacon. Mm-hmm. No dramatic special ops story here, and he has a little smiley face, <laughs> but satisfaction and gratitude abound nonetheless, and perhaps a new point of view on why Spinrite is so awesome. It's interesting because the other reason I wanted to read this, this is the, this is the long posting that I skipped last week because we already had a we super had a long, long right, podcast, right, right. Uh, but he brings up something that has been asked before, but we've never talked about. Anyway, I'll get to that in a second. So he says, our Fox Pro Fox Pro developers' old Dell laptop, which had been trucking along fine for years, suddenly wouldn't boot this morning. BSOD-ing during every boot attempt. And, as usual, safe mode was no help. He's usually a stickler for doing frequent backups. But when I asked how long since the last backup, I got back only an embarrassed sheepish sheepish smile. Oh, boy. Mm -mm. Recognizing immediately that this was probably Spinrite's cue to enter from stage left. I put it to work, and in about an hour, it had completed. Although there was no record of any bad sectors found or corrected, I did notice it churning away for several minutes on a few spots, and I suspected I was on the right track, parens, no pun intended, he wrote. (laughs) Sure enough, after Spinrite, the laptop booted right up, and so far, all looks to be intact. A backup has now been performed, and the impetus to replace the laptop very soon has been renewed. Just another, and he says, just another day at the office for Spinrite, but a significant potential loss averted for us. Thank you so much for such a legendary product. I promise to buy another couple of licenses to reach my consultant's license status ASAP. And he said, by the way, while going while doing a bit of research into smart. A while back, that's the Self-Monitoring Analysis and Reporting Technology, SMART, acronym that's built into all contemporary hard drives. I stumbled across a hard drive data recovery experts site, which had a page recommending data recovery and utility software. At first, I was surprised not to see Spinrite at all, let alone at the top of the list where it should be, until I saw a note where he explains that he paraphrasing, disqualifies Spinrite because it doesn't make a copy of all the readily accessible data before attempting restorative measures and thus puts more data at further risk, unquote. Hmm. He said, I understand the logic behind this argument, and I agree that in rare circumstances, a drive may degrade to such an extent or have physical damage to the heads, for example, and not be diagnosed until it's hanging by the proverbial thread, and thence Spinrite's thrashing may snap that last thread. But you know what? Having used Spinrite myself since the early 90s, and hearing all your testimonials on Security Now every week for three years, and hear you explain how it and hard drives work, I've come to realize that most hard drives' magnetic media failures don't fall into that severe category, and that Spinrite's approach offers far more bang for my buck than data recovery specialist services, which are what this guy was recommending. Whilst he's probably just taking a very conservative approach, understandable in that industry, 
Someone more cynical than myself might suggest this guy's wowzer attitude is not in his customer's best financial interests. Even more cynical people might wonder if some of these data recovery specialists secretly use SpinWrite themselves to recover data from customers' drives and charge traditional, parens, read exorbitant, close parens, data recovery prices for it. I'm reminded of the race to decode the human genome in the 90s with the purists using a stubborn, narrow-minded linear sequencing technique that was threatening to take forever, and Craig Venter's maverick scattergun recombination approach, which which won the race. I see your unique and novel approach to tackling magnetic media failure in exactly the same light. Simply brilliant. Well, there you go. That was Anthony's um, note and posting. I'm with him on that one. I mean, saving the data uh, seems to me unnecessary. Well, I mean, you could do it if I mean, often when I tell people to do a drive recovery, I say, you know, do work on a copy of the drive if you're really, you know, worried about the data. But that right. spin right wouldn't help in that case. You'd make a copy and then have to work on the original drive, wouldn't you? Um, I guess I'm of two minds. The 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 way spin right works that is doing an in place recovery um, does have. I mean, there there is the possibility that if the if the drive is absolutely determined to die, then nothing any software can do can prevent that from happening, and. If it's going to happen at some length, at some point, then, then you know when you're using it is probably when it's going to happen. Uh, Spinrite's in-place recovery probably owes more to its its history than to anything else. You know, I wrote it first back in the in the late '80s when a 10 megabyte hard drive was a couple thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, people didn't have extra hard drives. You were glad to have one. You know, I mean, you if you had one, your friends who were still shuttling floppy disks in and out of their floppy drives, they were envious of you. So there wasn't this whole notion of, oh, just get another drive and put, you know, copy the data over to it. So doing an in-place recovery, you know, really made the most sense. And the fact is, while I understand the theoretical point that that guy, that data recovery expert was making, um, I have now... 20 plus years of experience with, you know, Spinrite's actual use. And we see virtually no instances of, I mean, yeah, maybe anecdotally it's happened a few times where, you know, while Spinrite was working on the drive, it gave up. Yeah, but I've never almost, seen that. It almost never does. Yeah. You know, and typically what's happening is some sectors are, are getting in trouble. You just use Spinrite to bring them back and then you're okay. You know, and had you used Spinrite the week before, then the problem w- would have never happened in the first place. So, you know, j- so, you know, drives are dense enough that they're always sort of on the edge, but using error correction technology on the fly to keep them looking fine. Spinrite isn't fooled by that. And so it's able to go in and and fix problems before they manifest and Fortunately, to fix them even after they have manifested, but but in all cases, these are not drives that are about to completely go belly up. That that's that. Fortunately, that happens very rarely. It's mostly the people's data becomes endangered right. long before that actually happens. Right. And of course, as soon as they can't boot, they know something's wrong. They get, but that's long long before the drive is completely toast. And so, Spinrite can typically bring it back to life. All right, coming up in just a little bit, we're going to talk about GhostNet and the scary spy activity going on. Before I do that, though, I want to tell you about Nerds On Sight. I want to be a nerd.com. You know about Nerds On Sight. They're a team of IT professionals, people who are nerds. They are the first to admit it, and they're looking for more nerds to work with them. With all competencies and skills, you know, uh, you know from PC to Mac to Cisco to Oracle to Fix-it technicians, website designers, programmers, project managers, even sales, trainers, security experts, antivirus gurus. They're especially looking for nerds who are focused on today's small and medium enterprises. It turns out that's the pretty much the only growing market sector right now. You stay an independent contractor. You're in business for yourself, but not by yourself. And that's the key. You focus on what you love to do, but you don't have to worry about running a business. Nerds takes care of a lot of the details for you. They keep you 
skilled with their University of Nerdology, over 250 core competencies. Everything you'd want to know. And if, you, and if you're, you know, including a Staro, system architecture design, software development, IT departments, small uh, business and residential IT services, the, the works, desktop support. But, but uh, you know, even if you are you know, working on a job and you say, boy, I, don't, I need to know more about, uh, you know, uh, this Barracuda or this Staro, you call another nerd. If you're a nerd, and it's great, it's just, you're, you just, it's a team. You keep your business, but you get the support you need to focus on what you love to do. If you're a nerd and you love working with people, go to IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting today. There's one going on soon, so don't delay. Go to IWantToBeANerd.com. We love them. Nerds on site. All right. Let's talk about ghosts. Okay. So this is a really interesting story with lots of information and details that I think our listeners are going to like. And uh, I learned something really interesting, too, about the evolution of command and control um, in these networks. I think everyone will find interesting. Um, The story begins um, about nine months ago when uh, when the uh, representative of the Dalai Lama. Uh, in exile, um, asked some uh, uh, an, an affiliated group. There, there's something called the Sec Dev Group in Canada and the Citizen Lab, which is at the Monk Center for International Studies at the University of Toronto. And these two groups work together on and, and have in the past on issues of cyber stalking, cyber terrorism, cyber attacks, that whole sort of area. Um, and they have a political orientation. I mean, so, you know, the international studies side. And so um, about um, six years before that, in 2002, the group had been involved with the Dalai Lama with some sort of malware. They were the, – the Dalai Lama's organization was being targeted, you know, through, um, you know, direct malware attempts to infect their network. And so these guys became involved so they were asked to, I guess, through some sort of there, there was there like, like a meeting where they were just sort of talking casually about, well, you know, maybe we need to do some sort of education to inform the people who work in our offices and are on our network what they need to be doing to be safe. And as a consequence of the, of the conversation, one thing sort of led to another. And the, the person who was the executive with the um, with the Dalai Lama's organization said, well, you know. Why don't you just sort of take a look at our offices, meet a couple of our people, maybe, you know, check out our network. I think, you know, he, in the in the process of of having this conversation, some concerns have been raised. So they took a look at a couple of machines and sure enough, they discovered some malware that they were previously unaware of. Um, they they put Wireshark, which is the the open source, publicly available uh, sniffer. It's the one I use myself. It's a very nice program. They, they put it on the machine and did some traffic captures of, of, of traffic that was, that, that was transacting with that machine. That allowed them to see a communication that was being made autonomously by this machine um, to a, an IP that happened to be on the island of Hainan in the People's Republic of China. Um, they they tracked down the IP, looked at reverse DNS, checked the listings. It was just a commercial internet service provider, a standard you know internet provider um, IP. And what was interesting was that they then checked they 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 went then went to that machine not physically but over the net, and they discovered that. The the command and control system that was at the receiving end of this client initiated communication was it had a an open access web interface. So using just a regular web browser, they they connected to this server, certainly taking all kinds of precautions themselves, I'm sure. And and began the the process of figuring out what was going on. What they 
at, in looking at this machine, which this first client machine, which had been infected, they found some they, they found this malware um, content in a number of documents which um, had been attached to email. So this is exactly the kind of infection vector we've talked about often and which I was just talking about um, uh, re- relative to PowerPoint slides and this currently unknown or well now now known, but it, it was discovered in the wild. So it was a zero day exploit because it was being exploited before it was known. Um, in this case, that it was a an old problem in Microsoft Word from 2006 that was still um, two years later being exploited because this particular machine had not been updated in that length of time. Oh, boy. So, you know, so these non-updated machines, you know, create this window of opportunity. So, so by logging into this command and control web interface with a, they, they discovered that this was a, a software system called, Ghost Rat, uh, R-A-T for Remote Access Trojan. And literally Googling Ghost Rat and clicking on like four links, I had the source code for it yesterday. It's an wow. open. It's that was an, easy. It's an open source. Open yeah, I had source, ver- great. version three point six beta. Was, <laughs> oh man, was the one. This shows I you. Found. I mean, this these are professional programmers writing this at this point. Actually, it shows signs of not being. Oh, interesting. That professional. For, well, for all kinds of reasons that we're going to talk about. I want to oh, sort of run through the timeline, and then you and I are going to talk about a lot of a lot of what this all means. But in looking through the source, I saw. First of all, comments in Chinese, which um, mm-hmm. uh, which my own um, Visual Studio didn't translate for me. Um, uh, but what I saw was like lots of sort of canned chunks of things, like sample code that had been pulled from various Microsoft tools, just sort of glued together oh, by a little boy. bit of custom code. But this thing is you know, way bigger than it needs to be, and it's just sort of, you know, pulled together to do the job. Um, it's It's been around for some time. And it's funny because in the forum where I found this, there was a bunch of people who were having trouble with error messages. And, well, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't sure whether I had to install the DDK or not. Uh, and I'm, I'm not really quite sure how to get rid of these error messages. You know, anyone, can someone give me a hand? And so this, and this forum where I found it was a Trojan horse development forum with, I mean, this is just all now, out in the open, just you know, a couple clicks. You you Google Ghost Rat, and you'll find you know the source code for it. So, so interestingly, now back in the day, as as they say now, back when I was first involved in this myself, in in backtracking attacks that were being made against GRC, you, you you'll remember that, and we've talked about this a number of times that the botnet then. Um, was based on IRC chat. So when you got yourself infected, if you were unlucky enough to do so, the, the, your, the, the, the client that was the infection would make an outgoing connection to an IRC chat server somewhere. IRC chat was convenient for the bad guys to use because IR, the IRC chat network is itself a network of interconnected servers that will relay chat messages among them. So it's not necessary for the bad guys, the 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 bot masters, to be logging into that same server. In doing so, they would be vulnerable to being caught because that server, I mean, it's easy to find the server. You just look at the IP that the IRC connection is being made to. Now you know where this bot is going for command and control coordination. Then you look at all the incoming connections to that channel of the IRC server, and it's easy to to track down the IP of whoever is issuing the commands. So instead, by using IRC, you've got a sort of a federation of affiliated servers, and the bad guys can be can enter the channel on a completely different, unrelated server 
which will then forward their commands throughout the network until it finds the channel on the server where it's destined. So it makes backtracking them much more difficult. So that was the technology, what, uh, six, seven, eight years ago. Today, things are different. Um, What I found most interesting is that all of the protocol being used for command and control is just HTTP. Really? The, the, yes. The, that makes sense, though, because that's least likely to get filtered, right? Well, well, it, get, get, get a load of this. It's even disguised. That is, the, the client makes an outbound web connection to this web server, which is the, which is the command and control web server. It does it to a PHP page asking for a PHP page or in some cases running a, a CGI script, which is very common for, you know, any kind of, of automated pages. So it's just a standard port 80 HTTP connection. The commands are sent back encoded in JPEG images. So even if you were watching the traffic, you just see web activity with an image being retrieved in response to a PHP query, which happens all the time every day. I mean, that's the way the web works now, more often than not, in fact. But the, the commands, instead of just being out in plain text, they are, they're bound into image files, which are, re, which are being retrieved by the client. So unless you really knew that this that this a given IP was was malicious, you'd have no reason to suspect it from even looking at the packet traffic going back and forth. And as you said, Leo, it's also not going to be filtered. You can imagine that all kinds of people are now blocking IRC from crossing their their firewalls and and routers, but you can't block regular web traffic without you know incurring all kinds of problems. So I mean, even if you proxy it, you could also have a proxy which is accepting the request, forwarding the request, accepting the, the returning image, and returning that to, to, to the browser. So even proxies in line would allow this to pass through. So, I mean, it, it's a, it's a real, it, it, that represents a real evolution in, in the way these, these networks are being organized. What was really interesting, though, is when these guys logged into the first of these, of these control servers, they... They refer to control servers and command servers as separate. The command servers are the source of of updates and and uh, images and, and documents. So essentially, the client contacts the control server. The control server returns inst- um, instructions for how to contact the command server, which the client then autonomously does. It receives commands from this second command server and then returns a status back to the control server once the command has been executed. So it's a a fairly sophisticated relaying system um, designed to keep, you know, one side from knowing what the other is doing, essentially, unless you're really monitoring all the traffic at the common point. One of the interesting things that that they discovered is that the web interface lists all the machines of which it is aware, that is, all the clients, the infected clients, which have contacted it, the date of first contact, the date of most recent contact, and includes links that you can click on for sending commands to these things. So it's got a complete, mature, point-and-click user interface and a database which is maintaining a essentially a history of the of the malware's contact with this control server. So naturally, I mean, this thing lists all the IPs of the machines that have contacted it. So the researchers were able to say, oh, we just found the mother load here. They, they of course, did reverse DNS lookups on all the IPs. They did who is queries to find out who, who the registrars were. They ended up, it turns out, having access through their connections to a number of many other machines that were either in in um, networks affiliated with the Dalai Lama or in in other Tibetan 
um, uh, organizations, non-government organizations. They were able to visit those machines. They found, in some cases, multiple instances of this ghost rat software. That's why this whole thing was called GhostNet, by the way, if that wasn't clear. They found, in some cases, multiple infections that were contacting multiple control servers. That allowed them to then expand their search to and access other control servers, which they did. Um, they ended up finding four control servers, all on lo- located on the same island in the People's Republic of China, um, and six command servers that were not otherwise affiliated. However, all of the domain name registrations pointed back to the same single individual. So this network oh, that's interesting. And the, the 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 thanks to this database that each of these control servers was maintaining, they could see that these um that th- this whole network went back several years, back to the the date of that original infection or that original infection vector back in 06. So this whole network had been in place for some time. Some machines didn't stay infected very long. That is, the they could see from the logs that the date from the first contact to the last contact was only maybe, you know, uh, 10, 20, 30 days. Some machines were infected for several years. That is, they, you know, they got themselves infected and that infection just sat there for several years contacting the control server periodically um, to see whether there was anything that the, that the control server wanted them to do. They were able, of course, now that they have, they knew what the software was and they could look at the command interface, they were able to see that these things could could basically take an inventory of the client, the, the, the infected client machine, could exfiltrate, using their term, any and all documents on the infected machine, could turn on the, a microphone if present, and and stream audio out of that client to a, a given target, and the same with the webcam. Turn on the webcam and stream video in real time out of there. So, you know, basically, they, oh, and execute any arbitrary command on the machine that they wanted to as a remote, as, as, as a remote access software. So, fundamentally they had complete ownership of of these machines um and in some cases they saw evidence of the 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 commander who was running these control servers watching an email dialogue between affiliated entities and inserting a spoofed email towards the a not yet infected endpoint, and ha- having been able to see the conversation, the 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 uh, the bot master or the 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 net master was able to to create an email which flowed with the conversation and contained the a, a malicious document which was opened by the recipient who. Who, for whom this email made total sense. They were expecting something like this, or this wasn't out of the ordinary. They opened it, got infected, and that new client then contacted the control server. So, yeah. so you could see how this network was 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 being perpetuated and and being maintained. In one instance, um, during this investigation, somebody who had worked uh, in some capacity. Um, with the Dalai Lama, was attempting to go back to visit her family and was stopped at the border, for held for two months, interrogated. And when she claimed that she was not involved in politics at all, this was there, there, was, there was nothing political going on. She was just doing studies. Um, they showed her, the authorities showed her a complete transcript of her private conversations, which she had had um, in um, previously, so th- this was information that the intelligence uh, agencies of China did have in their possession. Wow! So it's you know I was initially skeptical. I think as were you that it would be China because of course any good hacker covers his tracks. But this sounds like all told, given the evidence, including the Chinese comments, 
the location of the servers, the registry, that it's pretty clear it's coming out of China. But what's interesting is it doesn't sound like it's very well done. Well, you think the Chinese government wouldn't be going to forums to get their code. Very good point. And so there are a number of questions which are raised. First of all, we, you know, we have the we have we have the fundamental problem of of attribution. You know, the attribution problem is a is a classic problem that law enforcement has, because, yes, what what do we know? We we know what, what what is provable. And that's the problem, of course, is the threshold of provability is much higher than than what 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 is guessable. So we know that there are four servers all located in an island on the in actually it's the same island as where the Chinese intelligence organization is, um, but they're not you know Chinese intelligence organization IPs. They're just random ISP IPs. We don't know that we know nothing about who is connecting to those servers because these investigators had no physical access to those to those actual four control servers you'd have to have physical access to them to then watch all the traffic coming out of them in order to see who was connecting and accessing that web interface and taking command of it um so so you know the Chinese government that obviously and continually denies any involvement may in fact not be involved. Yeah. I mean, we don't have any any evidence to say otherwise. I would think, and, you know, I mean, if our government were doing it, they'd have these hack, you know, good programmers at the NSA writing uh, stealthy code that isn't it's not out on forums anywhere. Well, Leo, you know, as I've told you, I've declined Right. Some of those requests. Right. You can, you know, you can my, be sure my, that not everyone has declined those requests. And my my code would not work this way yeah. and no one would find it. Yeah, and, exactly. you know, I'd be using packets no one had seen before. Yeah. And given you the know, resources and the size of China and the and frankly, the number of great programmers China has, I, I find this hard to believe that this well, is a government and effort. The fact that the web interface wasn't password protected. All you had to do was know what IP port. Right. To, to to browse to you know and, and like what directory structure apparently there there were there were some reference made to needing to guess the the location of the page the web page that contained the interface yet these guys with no with w- with no specific knowledge were able to guess in four instances and find the web interfaces on four different machines yeah. which are wide open and unprotected yeah so that's that's nuts too. Now, on the other hand, you could also say, "Oh, aren't the Chinese government clever to make it look so amateurish?" That is to use, you know, version three point six beta of the Ghost Rat because we're going to draw all the same conclusions. I mean, it does give them plausible deniability. If you have something really high tech and robust that is, you know, nothing like it exists out in the public domain, then if or we might say when it's inevitably discovered, because all these things ultimately are, um, it's like ooh, now it's much harder to say that's not you know high end NSA or the equivalent of Chinese intelligence you know um, activities. Here, this looks like you know random people. Well, and in fact, my personal take is that it's somebody probably a non professional. Who's using public domain tools? Who's focused? Who's got you know strong political incentive? Mm-hmm. Who's you know probably feeding documents that are uncovered to authorities, but that th- the authorities are not themselves doing this. It's just somebody who you know th- through nationalistic pride or or political beliefs or or whatever you know is doing it. I mean, again, we have probably with the with the. Um tacit approval of the Chinese government. I mean, this is certainly uh, it's uh, useful information cons- consonant with their their aims. Yeah, it's useful information. But I, it seems a little hard to believe that their government is doing this. And so, you know, the other thing that that we have to come away from with this, I mean, if you Google ghost rat and you literally in four clicks, you own the source code and oh, and Windows binaries are available if you're not if you don't if you if you don't want to assemble this or compile it yourself, you know what does it take to perform an attack? It takes you know having a PC 
and and being in, a little involved in the underground so that you're in the communication flow of oh look here's servers that are compromisable here's here's you know I, I mean it's not even necessary to be on the leading edge because as we've seen there are computers that are exposed for years to known to, to known vulnerabilities so it's not like you've got to be you know someone using the like the, this PowerPoint exploit that we just talked about clearly you can be the way Conficker is working you, you can be using something that was fixed in october of last year and still a huge number of machines are 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 available hmm. you know to me it looks like this particular trojan is being used specifically for politically oriented um work in fact what they found, what these researchers found, they found the four control servers, six command servers. Among, by processing all of their logs, they ended up tracking down 1,295 discrete machines. And these are, the, the machines all have IDs. So even if they're on um, dynamic IPs, the, the logging technology recognizes the machine is connecting from a different IP. So this is all the, – the IPs have been disambiguated, or, or, or the machines have rather, um, independent of whatever IPs they happen to have from, from time to time. So there's 1,295 individual infected machines in 103 countries. Wow. 30% of those are what this group considered – high value targets you know you're going to end up picking up some debris from you know from just random machines that get infected but for example the machines that they were able to find and track down by using reverse dns um, on the ips and in many cases the machine names with the names of the machines are also posted in the log on on the control servers they 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 confirmed that they found machines that were infected in the ministries of foreign affairs of Iran, Bangladesh, Latvia, Indonesia, the Philippines, Brunei, Barbados, and Bhutan, hmm. and the embassies of India, South Korea, Indonesia, Romania, Cyprus, Malta, Thailand, Taiwan, Portugal, Germany, and Pakistan. Um, they found machines in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations Secretariat, the South Asian Association of, for Regional Cooperation, the Asian Development Bank, a number of news organizations, an unclassified computer at NATO headquarters, and I, I got a like, kick out of this, and one machine in Deloitte and Touche in New York. Why Deloitte and Touche? That seems like the outlier there, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just, you know, and, and you know, there were a bunch of <laughs> others that, that weren't even worth naming. But these are for sure all in the same net. I mean, they're, they're, they're not. Absolute, yes, they're, they're, they're known in the same net. They, they, hmm. These were, those machines were repeatedly contacting these control servers. And, and these control servers, this whole technology has a database which it maintains a first contact, last contact, you know, commands the 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 name of the computer, the name of the logged in user, wow. you know, all of this all of this information is sent back, you know, um, through just regular web queries in order to get this to um, the the server which is controlling the network. So this stuff really exists; it is really happening, and. Unfortunately, thanks to vulnerabilities in Windows, um, I mean, as far as we know, all of this is Windows hosted. There's none of this that that is nearly as well known or or prevalent over on the Mac side or Linux for that reason. But as a consequence of these vulnerabilities, which are constantly being found, it's possible to to use social engineering to get somebody to to open a piece of email, maybe open a document get themselves infected, put their machine under control. And, you know, in some cases, these infections last years before anyone is suspicious. Wow. Well, okay, now let me tell you the uh, story that I mentioned. This was in the uh, Wall Street Journal yesterday. And uh, it's uh, the title, you should look for it. It's written by uh, Siobhan Gorman. And the title is Electricity Grid in U.S. 
penetrated by spies. The companies that run these uh, uh, grid computers, by the way, uh, generally aren't discovering these tools. It's U.S. intelligence agencies, which are, you know, kind of chartered to protect us against cyber warfare, who come in and do assays and find this stuff. Tools have been left behind on um, um, many of these uh, systems uh, that could be used to attack them, to take down the power grid. Um, you know, they don't they don't make any assertions about who they're from, but U.S. officials said investigators have followed electronic da- trails of stolen data to China and Russia. It's kind of the same thing, right? Um, yeah. Both the Chinese and Russians deny it, as yeah. you would expect. Um, so that's a, this is even more scary. I mean, it's one thing to get in an embassy computer and try to, try to steal state secrets, but it's, it's pretty clear that the next uh, form of, of warfare will be cyber warfare. And what's, there's a, you know, what's the first thing you do down? You take, you do, you take down the grid, the grid goes down, you know, a lot of, a lot of what we do in this country stops. Yeah. Well, the internet stops if you take, if you take enough of the grid down. Right. Yeah. You, you You don't attack the internet. You don't attack the internet. You attack the grid, the power that runs it. Uh, the good news is that there's the effort is going on to uh, to be away, uh, you know, aware of this, to discover it, and to protect us against it. But uh, I thought this is just it seems like another side of the same story, in effect. Yeah, and all of this just, I mean, as someone who lives this technology, I mean, who recognizes how easy it is to do these things today, it's wrong that it's easy as it is yeah. to do these things today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this all makes me feel like we're in the Wild West phase of, you know, the, I mean, just the infancy of this technology. You know, it, you know, I remember, I mean, remember, not, not just stories of a time. I mean, I remember when there was the argument of, well, the Internet won't happen because of the chicken and egg problem. You know, no, but no one's on the Internet, so no one's going to want to get on the Internet. And it's like, well, well, that problem got solved. Yeah. Now the internet has happened. It's obviously here. It's obviously a huge win and a and a math, uh, you know, a, a massive asset from an ability to to leverage this kind of real time communications and and control and information flow and everything that we use it for. Well, it's not that long ago that no one really was taking it seriously. Now we are, but unfortunately, all of the technology that we've got is it can be repurposed for, you know, for non-intended purposes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the same, what really kind of is stunning is it's the same uh, holes that regular people are, are, you know, the same, these big government computers are falling prey exactly the same way regular people are falling prey. They're doing the same dumb things. The same unpatched systems. Well, because they're running Windows, of all things. I mean, I'm sure, Leo, you, you've seen the photos of, like, major light boards in Vegas yeah. that have a Windows error death. dialogue. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, my well, God. Well, I don't think running, running Windows, I mean, can't you harden Windows sufficiently? I mean, can't, can't you make it secure? Or would it, you, what should they be running if, you don't, if not Windows? I mean, uh, you're no, running Windows. You must yeah, be able to secure it. No, I, I mean, I'd use a a, 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 a non-standard real-time operating system. There's all kinds yeah. of embedded operating systems around yeah. that are that are ab- that no virus has ever attacked because right. it's not a target for anybody. Right. Or uh, NetBSD or, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, when when you see that, it just looks like Amateur League. It's like, okay, fine. There was a... There not was just some, Windows, Windows 98. There was... <laughs> There was some there was some kiosk in a in an airport that I remember seeing where there was you know I mean it was a that they normally covered up the fact that there was windows oh, yeah. running underneath it but you know it had an error and up came a windows dialog box right through this otherwise nice looking turnkey oh and it was VB that I, I remember now oh. seeing that it was Visual Basic that they'd written this is like you know okay I you get what you ask for yeah. Wow, it's it's fascinating uh, stuff and uh, and a little scary at the same time. Well, it's real. I mean, anyone. The the thing I like about this story and sharing it with our listeners is this makes it so clear that it is it is this easy yeah. and that this stuff is real. This is not sci-fi. Get this your, is not get your code on a hacker forum. Oh, <laughs> that's what cracks me up. I had no idea this was just kind of you know commonly available stuff. Yeah. 
Ghost Rat. Ghost Google rat. it. Four clicks away, you got the source code. And then, you know, and, and you're not quite sure how to, how to compile it. Well, just follow yeah, along. We'll give you binaries. Forum. Yeah. Follow, follow along ask. in, the, in yeah. the forum. Yeah. Because yeah, they're of, all trying to figure it out, too. Lots of helpful hackers ready oh. and willing. You probably get better support on Ghost Rat than you can get on most commercial software. <laughs> oh, it's real time. Yeah. <laughs> Steve Gibson is at grc.com. That's the website, Gibson Research Corporation. You'll find Spin right there, the world's best file, and uh, I'm sorry, disk recovery and maintenance utility, and of course, a lot of free stuff too, including Shields Up and uh, Shoot the Messenger, Decombobulator, Unplug and Pray. I love his names. Wismo. It's all at, and soon, some, some new stuff, all at yep. grc.com. Also, there, show notes, 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired, and Elaine's great transcript, so you can read along as well. And pass it along we have a wiki site with much of that stuff too i'm really pleased with the uh, the twit wiki's really moving along wiki wiki.twit.tv thanks to all the volunteers who you know scribble 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 while steve talks to steve, steve. <laughs> thank you steve we'll see you uh, next week righto leo thanks on security now security now